Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, upwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection, this is said to be the sublime abiding, by not holding to false use, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being free from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Ah, you haven't found the questions. There's no questions. Yay. Oh. <laughs> Here we go. Oh, oh. It's going to be a late night. <laughs> See what happens. Okay, for the first question this evening. Dear Ajahn Brahm, we visited your cave today. <laughs> We were speechless. Not only Ajahn Chah can have a luxurious life, you can have any time. You are really blessing for our Buddhist community. Not only learning from you, even seeing you makes us really happy. You are such an inspiring monk. This is really nice to write this. That's my, my writing, isn't it? <laughs> May the Triple Gem bless you always. May all devas help you always. Thank you for your simple, inspiring life and all the practical dharma. May you have good health. Okay. <laughs> Same to you. May you have good health too. During last evening's question and answers, you mentioned we don't need to improve because it's already good enough. How, does, how to do that in a working environment? Stop working. <laughs> And as employer, as a boss's supervisor, we continuously need to improve ourselves to be a good role model. Please advise. It's always like this idea in life, always improving. Always like improving our home, always improving our, our lifestyle, always improving anything. And then sometimes you realise, you know, where have we got to with all these improvements? Has it really improved? 
Or has it got worse? Sometimes it's really quite embarrassing to say it's got worse. We've done all this hard work and it would have been just as good if we'd have done nothing. But anyway, there's enough people, like, what happens on this retreat here, do the interviews, there's still lots of people think about how to improve things. So you can be one of those elite few who doesn't have to think about improving anything. Let other people improve things. You can just uh, be there. And be like, like in every experiment you need, what's it called, that uh, one thing? Control. control, yeah. I don't like control, that's a bad word. <laughs> but you can be like the, the control or something, the one they compare everything to. So you don't have to improve at all. Aren't you perfect enough? If you try and get yourself better, even more improved, sometimes you end up making it worse. It's a weird thing, even with, ah, even with mental disabilities. Sometimes it's an interesting part of our life. For many years, we wanted to get rid of people who were uh, weird or strange or didn't fit in. But then sometimes the, it's not they didn't fit in, it's just we couldn't fit in with them. We were in the majority, but nevertheless, I remember seeing this article about schizophrenics, and they were just not um, trying to deny, you know, when they see, say, saw heads rolling on the floor, which was you know, totally impossible for someone like me, but then for them that's what they saw. So instead of denying what they saw, they said, oh yeah, that's okay, make sure you don't step on them or something. And they were acknowledging the truth of their perceptions in their framework. That truth of their perceptions in my framework didn't fit, but your perceptions were like that. And just the very fact they were being um, recognized and respected made a lot of difference to them. They could actually calm down and they weren't so uptight and tense, which made some of those um, delusions even worse. So a lot of times the idea of, you know, you're not big enough, good enough, we've got to improve you. You know where that gets to, don't you? That's why, you know, somebody is gay. I can improve that, I can get rid of that, I can convert you to being, being same as what you're not. And that's really gross. Or you may have like, you know, maybe your family can find out you're Buddhist. Okay, we can convert you to being a Christian. Why do people want to improve each other instead of respect each other? And a lot of time we think, well, some of these things, you know, you should improve. Do you? And if you're a victim of the improvement movement, <laughs> you know what it feels like. They don't um, accept you into their, um, like their family, you know, into the community. They want to improve you first of all, and then uh, you can be accepted and loved. I prefer to love first. An improvement, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, but you don't have to. Do you, do you get the meaning of this? It's a very powerful thing, but it's nice to see, especially in our Western world, over the years I've been alive, there have been people who have some sort of physical or emotional differences 
I'm not going to call it deformity. They're different than others. Why do they have to be excluded or improved first and then you can be included? And that's just, it's like you're being rejected. Anyway, so, and for you, look, I've watched each one of you over the last nine days. You're perfect enough. You don't have to improve. I'm not going to give you an F mark. And if I did, what does F mean? Fantastic, yes. I don't try and improve. Can an enlightened being be able to confirm if another is enlightened? No. They can only confirm that they're not. As a lay person, how can we keep our precepts in life during working relationship and etc.? Please advise. How do you keep them? You just by not breaking them. <laughs> Honestly, when I was a late person, uh, I wasn't born a monk. So, when I was a late person, sometimes the, the five precepts, I would you know, go to the Thai temple in London, because that was like close by, one little point there, there was a Sri Lankan temple, even closer to you know, where my parents lived in London. But I never went there, because I never knew it existed. And I actually complained to the monks afterwards, so, you know, they took the point. They said, when you uh, go anywhere, you always tend to go in a car. We don't see you, lay people don't see you monks. And I said, that's really wrong. You should actually get out into a, and get a bus or get the train or walk, so people see you. Because if I'd have seen the monks in Chiswick, I'd have gone to meditate with them. I was a really keen Buddhist, but I could never see them. I didn't know they existed. Of course, the Sri Lankan community knew them because they were well-known amongst the Sri Lankan community, but for a Westerner, I didn't know where they were. But anyway, I went to the Thai temple. I could see where they were. And they're very glad, actually, that... Um, <coughs> they were very glad when I became a monk. And the reason they were glad when I became a monk was about for three months beforehand, before going to Thailand to become a monk, I would go on my motorbike there every morning and to do the morning chanting and meditation. I was really keen. And many mornings I'd been knocking on the door because <laughs> they, <were, laughs> they were all asleep. I would wake them up in the morning. That's how keen I was. <laughs> and I'd wake him up in the morning, and, oh, you again. <laughs> okay, so they had to do some charting and meditation. And then they were so glad that when I went off to town to become a monk. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Anyway, I was going somewhere else with this, wasn't it? Oh, keeping your precepts. So I was going to the Thai temple a lot, and then one day one of the monks asked me, you've been coming here a lot, it's about time you took the five precepts. And I actually asked him, what are the five precepts? This is true. And he said, the first precept is not destroying any living beings, intentionally. And I said, look, I was a, I'm a vegetarian. I was a vegetarian then. He said, okay, fair enough. You don't need to take that one. Not sort of stealing. I said, I never steal. You know, I used to when I was a kid, because I was really poor, and if you 
wasn't really stealing, but if they went on a bus on London Transport, if they didn't ask for your fare, that's okay, I won't pay it. But then it got to the point I didn't feel comfortable with that. So even though they never asked for my fare, I said, you didn't ask me for my bus fare, here it is. And sometimes some of the bus drivers looked me really strange. Anyway, and third precept, uh, not committing adultery or sexual misconduct. And look, I said, no, I did have girlfriends at that time. Actually, I should be more precise. I did have girlfriend. I never had two girlfriends at a time. That's not fair. So I was keeping my precept there. And of course, they're not lying. And I said, I, I didn't feel good about lying, especially that the people I talked to were your family, your loved ones, your friends. And of course, the last one of not taking alcohol or drugs. And by that time, I'd given up uh, alcohol. I remember at university, I just, the last time I took alcohol, I don't mind telling you this, scholar's dinner at Cambridge. I just, well, I, I was actually a scholar at Cambridge, so and I did really well in the entrance exams. So, the scholars and the, and the professors attached to that university, or attached to the East College, would always be invited for the scholar's dinner. And it's all for free, but that was like a nine-course meal. And it started off, you know, this is the best food in the, in the whole college, and it was really high class. Started off with sherry in the, in the gallery, which was built by Sir Christopher Wren, all very old, famous buildings. And they had butlers, you know, the real butlers, you know, with towels coming out of the back and stuff. And they would be walking around the table in the gallery uh, with some of the very best sherry. And with my friends, the first year, instead of theoretical physics, I was doing maths the first year. With some of my mathematics friends, we kind of worked out that if they were going around the table in a clockwise direction, the butlers, if we walked at the same speed in an anti-clockwise direction, <laughs> then we'd love to get twice as much sherry as everybody else. <laughs> which we did. Okay, that's like students, 18-year-olds. And so having had quite a, a few glasses of really nice sherry, then of course you went into the, um, the refectory, whatever they called it, and in, again a very, very old hall, and then we had the nine-course meal, you know, served by butlers. And you'd be sitting next to one of the staff, you know, one of the professors or one of the Nobel laureates or something. And then you'd have your glasses of uh, sherry or whatever it was uh, with wine. And you'd always, the butler was always hovering behind you. And it really was, if your glass was less than half full, he'd be in there and topping up straight away. <laughs> and so nine courses and different wines with every course. And when that was finished, then uh, it was to the, the old library. And then the old library there, there was again a big table, and there we had three glasses there. And that was for Port Claret and Madeira, which were also always filled up. And there were cigars on the table and some fruit. And then we had the, the toast. 
So I had this, out came this, this like a chalice, not like a cup, like a sort of a bathing mug. <coughs> and I, and by this time, honestly, I forget exactly what it was filled with. <laughs> but you had to drain it and say a toast in Latin. And by that time, I didn't remember what other people were saying. <laughs> and so you drank that, and then, you know, you don't remember very much. I was, you know, totally drunk. And I wouldn't laugh at that because I don't know how I got back to my room. I can't remember that, but I do remember waking up in the morning with a big pile of vomit next to my, on my pillow next to me. It was, it was disgusting. I didn't realize actually that's really dangerous. You could actually choke on that. But the worst thing was, and afterwards, some of the people were going, oh, what a great night that was. <laughs> I feel terrible. You had the hangover all day. And I thought, what on earth is this all about? Some of those staff, I mean, they really tried their very, 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 very best to make really high-class food, the sorts you'd get in a five-star restaurant. This wasn't like fish and chips or, or just uh, sandwiches or McDonald's. This was really high-class food. And all of it ended up on my pillow. And I felt disgusted about myself. I kind of felt ashamed. And then that was the last, me uh, last alcohol I ever took in my life. No more. It was like taking it to an extreme. And I, this was supposed to be Cambridge University. Like, don't people have more sense in that place? Answer, no. Anyway, so anyway, that's what's um, about the precepts. It didn't make any sense to break precepts. What do you want to do that for? Why take you know, illicit drugs? He had enough, by that time I was meditating, he had much more happiness in meditation without you know, seeing some of your friends taking drugs. Anyway, Ajahn Brahm, another <laughs> Nasruddin joke for your collection. Nasruddin goes into the local bank to open an account. The teller asks Nasruddin for proof of identity. Nasruddin rummages in his bag, pulls out a mirror, and looks at it and says, yeah, it's me. <laughs> But the postscript to that, but then the, the, uh, the banker said, let me have a look at that identity. And the, uh, the banker look, puts the mirror in front of his face, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> okay. Dear Ajahn, the schedule for the last day retreat has changed. Can we still have guided meditation as the previous schedule? Please, please, please. Desire is the cause of suffering. <laughs> we shall see. It's not tomorrow yet, anyway. So just leave it alone, see what happens. Thank you, Ajahn. So, so grateful to you and the team, led by Noria, always smiling, plus everybody else here too. Much better. I think your eyesight's going. <laughs> always smiling. People don't always smile. Sometimes they laugh. Gets more than a smile. But yeah, it's good. It's, people are hopefully pretty happy. 
But you know that something about uh, one of the things we're supposed to do tomorrow, according to Noria, is having a group photograph. But you know that's usually not such a good idea. And the reason is because the group photograph is done the very last part of the retreat, I expect no one will be able to smile. They'll all be miserable. <laughs> uh, retreat's over. Uh, I don't want to go. Uh, why does it have to, I have to go back to work, go back to my husband, my wife, go back to... <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Look at the kids. That's one of the reasons why that some of these retreats which I saw as a layperson. I said, look at them all. They had a photograph of the retreat. Look, they're all so happy. I said, yes, because they're going home today. <laughs> It'd be far more honest if you took the photograph in the middle of the retreat to see what people really look like in the retreat, and not just when they're, <laughs> they're about to go home and be free. Anyway, dear most <laughs> splendid Venerable Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> Do you have a successor plan for your retirement or enlightenment? <laughs> successor? Live in the present moment, could I say. <laughs> One of the things we do have, though, is in Bodhinyana Monastery, we have this rule that if any monk has an idea or plan to do something new, do something different, if it's their idea, they have to do it. That's a lot of monks that don't give me any ideas. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're not blooming hard work. So whoever had that idea, uh, do you have a successful plan for your retirement or enlightenment? You. You do it. Anyway, why do synchronicities and what Christians call grace seem to increase with the practice of keeping precepts? Is this related to the Something field? I don't know. Something field? Was it the permit field, is that? I'm not sure. But anyway, we don't have fields here in this part of uh, Serpentine. We have hills and forests. <laughs> <laughs> Synchronicities, what Christians call grace, seem to increase with the practice of keeping precepts. There was sometimes, I remember just giving a few talks now with Abbot Placid, who used to be the abbot of the Eunorsian Monastery. And you know, he used to say to me, he said, you know, Ajahn Brahman, he opens his mouth, he just starts talking. With me, I have to invite Grace in. And just uh, Ajahn Brahman, I don't know where he gets it from, but he just talks. He said, it's really unfair. <laughs> but anyway, Grace or whatever, with the practice of keeping precepts, I think the idea of synchronicities, or what you talk grace there, comes with the practice of letting go. Of not worrying what other people think of you. Of learning how just to be at peace. Because I do remember one of those, I wanted to share this story with you maybe, if the opportunity came up. That I think it was over in the UWA, they had a conference on different religions and uh, counselling. And so I forget actually who organized this, but they wanted uh, Abbot Placid and myself, like monks from different religions, he was a Benedictine monk, actually to give a talk about different questions on, on people who were um, uh, 
counselors or faith leaders or uh, in you know, for representing different religions. And so I said a few things, he said a few things, but it's always the best when we get the, um, the questions and answers. And then one of the persons of the audience put their hand up and said, I want to ask a question. And he said, whose name? He said, my name is Father Frank Brennan. And I thought, oh my goodness, I've heard of him before. He's a very, very intelligent professor of all sorts of divinities and stuff. And he was the person who, I forget who the Prime Minister was, but the Australian government selected to lead the panel to introduce a Bill of Human Rights into the Constitution. He was a really high-flying academic. And so when he asked me a question, straight away I realised, oh my goodness, Sajjan you can't get away with a joke against this really top, top intellectual Frank Brennan. And so what he asked me was, a, it was an interesting question. I don't usually worry about this sort of question, but he said, you know, do Buddhists believe in God? And usually I say, yes, no, no, we don't believe in the Creator God. But I realised that that's not going to take the uh, investigation any deeper. So, because I was uh, presenting together with Abbot Placid, we had lots of lovely conversations. Now, I remember going into uh, the New Norcia Monastery, and it's just north of here, and um, I remember asking him, says, you know, do, because it's a very old building, you know, do, uh, are there any ghosts in this old building, in this old monastery? Because it's such an ancient building. Are there any ghosts here? And he said, no. In Catholicism, we don't believe in ghosts. And I looked him in the eye, and I knew I had him. I said, what about the Holy Ghost then? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a trick question, I, I caught him. But anyway, he said, this uh, Abbot Placid, he would always tell me that one of his core beliefs was that, ev this is in his words, I don't agree with this, uh, on the surface of it, he said everybody, in his idea, is always searching for God. Now this is a good example that you may say, no, we're Buddhists, or I don't accept that, I'm an atheist. But that negativity doesn't lead wisdom to go any deeper. So I said, this is my friend, we've had lots of lovely discussions. I want to respect what he said. He said, everybody is searching for God. So what do you search for? What do atheists look out for? And sometimes I said, well, we search for peace. That's what you're here for. Find some peace in your, in your meditation, some meaning in life, some insight, some wisdom. And you can't uh, ignore things like meta-loving kindness, compassion, to be able to give love, to serve others. It's a wonderful thing. And to be, and to be helped when you're in need of help. So I said, well, uh, all my friends, monks, lay people, nuns, which I live with, and all the atheists I've ever met, 
They're always searching for peace, respect, truth, to be able to serve others, to be loved and cared for, and to have an idea of truth. So I said, and many other things as well, but I said, if that's what all the Buddhists are searching for, and you said everyone is searching for God, that must be what God means. And then straight away, that you know, you made a bridge, a very profound, deep bridge between the people of all different faiths and no faiths. Now, why do actually people join bikies? And you know, what, what they want to do, they want to have their fun in life, but they want a sense of community as well. And, and I don't look down upon the bikies because I remember just one of them when they, they died, you know. It, riding their bike too fast, they hit a, uh, a lamppost and died. And the mother of that boy would actually come to the monastery. And so that when he died, the mother said, you know, I decided I'm going to give the funeral service for my son. But he said, can you come along just in case? And it was very good just in case because as soon as she got up on the lectern there and started the funeral service, she broke down. You know, she overestimated herself. And then she said, um, look, there's a professional in here. Bob, <laughs> come and help. So I went up and I gave the funeral service. And the people in the, um, in the hall for this funeral service, they were bikies, you know, in all of their leather and uh, stuff and boots and, and ta not tattoos, but you know, they the insignia on the back of their jackets. And all of the girls there, they all their girlfriends. And honestly, they weren't dressed for a funeral. They were out dressed for a nightclub. I've never seen anybody dressed like that, you know, for a funeral service. But I did my bit. And then afterwards, they were all so sweet. Coming out to me, said, thank you, Ajahn Brahma, lovely service. Thank you so much. It was like, for that moment, I was like, part of them. I was almost, I thought they were going to put a little logo on the back of my robe. Because <laughs> when you were being kind to them, they showed their beautiful side. So everybody, you can say this, what are they searching for? What are you searching for? What do you want in life? And of course, that is these beautiful um, spiritual qualities, I say. So I say that must be what God is. I remember Father Frank Brennan, <laughs> he didn't argue with me. I thought, he said, oh, that's okay. <laughs> How is it that when I sit outside or in the dining room, I'm able to drop into a quiet pool of peace and contentment very easily? But when in the meditation hall, a wall seems to come up between my mind and the awareness of breath and often struggle to be aware of only a few breaths before thoughts intrude. I find this very frustrating. It's probably because of expectations. You think this is the meditation room. But there's another um, phenomenon which I've seen very often. That people come and tell me in their interviews, that when they go back to their room, it's a very comfortable room which you have in your cottages, and they say they can't go to sleep. And they're sort of lying down and just sleep doesn't come to them. But then, when they come in here to meditate, <laughs> 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 they
they fall fast asleep. <laughs> and so, you know, what's the solution? Very easily, very easy. Bring your <laughs> pillow and blankets in here and try to meditate in here and you fall fast asleep. Put your zafus in your room and then try to go to sleep. <laughs> You'll start to meditate very clearly. Sometimes we look at this place, this hall, this is a meditation room and, and that's one of the reasons why it's got some baggage with it. And those expectations and fears, that's what that wall is made of. So if you just come in here and just to sit down and just, I'm not coming here to meditate, I'm coming here to relax to the max. Just sit here and just relax. If you fall asleep, fine. If you're restless, fine. I'm just going to relax, take all the pressure off me. And when you relax, you find breathing in, breathing out. Oh, this is so nice. Beautiful nimitters. They'll come when you learn how to relax. And I'll try to get something. It's not frustrating, that this problem. It's a teacher for you. It isn't, it's not logical, is it? So, find a different way of doing things. Meditate to relax. How, dear Ajahn, how do you deal with a narcissistic person <laughs> who gives wonderful retreats, just amazing jokes, and stories which are so profound? So how do I deal with this? I look in the mirror. <laughs> no. I don't know, that's a word which has come up only recently. When I was young we never talked about narcissistic persons, but of course I think those things exist. And a lot of times, as you know, a narcissistic person is only just hiding from themselves. They just won't admit they've got faults to them. So when they don't admit they've got faults, if you catch them out at all, you say, you didn't see that, did you? You know that I remember just, uh, it's a bit of a shame it's not so sunny these last few days, because just before the retreat started, when it's nice, warm, sunny, dry days, all the, um, the joeys were coming out of the pouch of their mums. And they were just bouncing around. I won't say they're hopping, they bounce. Boing, boing, boing. There's <laughs> lots of energy. But then I do remember one of those young kangaroos. And they were just you know, bouncing through the forest. And they slipped over. They fell. You know, just went on side. And they looked at me. <laughs> and I, I didn't need to read their mind. They were saying, you didn't see that, did you? <laughs> it was an embarrassed kangaroo. <laughs> and so even kangaroos have narcissism sometimes. <laughs> the nice thing to do is just make a mistake. Let people know. You don't need to sort of hide it. I don't know why people want to hide their mistakes. It's much easier, less tense when you can make a mistake. I remember meeting this one fellow, he was amazingly wise and whatever he did, and I asked him if he ever made a mistake in his life. He said, yes, I did make a mistake, but only once. And that was, that was when he thought he made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a narcissist. 
Thank you so much to you and all the wonderful volunteers who made it possible for us to participate and benefit from this retreat. It has been a very conducive environment for letting go. You're writing as if this retreat is over. There's another, how many hours to go? It finishes at maybe lunchtime. There's another um, 16 hours to go, this retreat. Why is it that people are so ahead of themselves? Okay, be, be honest. How many of you have started packing your bags already? What have you done that for? We haven't left them yet. You shouldn't pack your bags until half an hour before you leave. That, that's maximum. <laughs> if you're going to leave sort of this evening, fair enough. But if you're leaving tomorrow morning, waste of time packing your bags. Anyway, it has been a very conducive environment for letting go all life's worries, taking ownership of developing our own practice at our own pace. Oh, that's like when we don't have any alarms or schedules. And I didn't actually say that. I remember saying it to one person during the interviews today. That's what we call noble silence. I never explained noble silence to you, did I? What does noble silence mean? No bell silence. <laughs> no bells. And because we don't have any bells, we don't have no bell, so we have no bell silence. Some people actually win the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> oh, come on, cheer me up. At least groan. Okay, especially with no policing or sticks on our backs, but with trust, kindness, guidance, and uh, inspiration. Yeah, from a happy customer, contented and easily satisfied, yeah. Again, some of the things with our world, like we have to trust. I learned this very early on, when you know, we started you know, Bodhinyana Monastery, there's a lot of work to be done. And even things like building. I say about uh, training Ajahn Bamali. He'd never done any like building work before. But I gave him a, a little rock wall to do. He said, I can't do this. I've never done this before. I'll just give it a try. And I lent, left him to let him learn how to do it by himself. I trusted him. And that was actually, he said, it was an amazing experience because... You know, he doubted himself, but because I just walked away and let him do it, he realized that I had confidence in him, which meant that he wasn't nervous, and he made this wall, which is still there. It doesn't look very nice, but it was still there. <laughs> and that's where you learn. You trust people. And once you do it, you say, that's you know, where things like two bad bricks come from. He said, you only made one bad brick? That's unfair. I did too. <laughs> but anyway, that's where you trust the people you work with. You give them a job, go and do it. And they do a much better job than you'd expect. And if you're given a job, wouldn't you like it if somebody trusted you? You know, you say, look out, look, can you just clean the hut? They're not going to check up afterwards that you did it. You just, they, they trust you. 
What a wonderful gift that is, they trust you. So you do the very best you can. And afterwards you always um, praise people. Praise gets you everywhere. It was not actually play, praise, but the old saying that flattery, flattery gets you everywhere. So you're such a wonderful um, retreatant. You are so generous. <laughs> okay, I better stop that. <laughs> Dear Ajahn, I know a lady ooh, whose father and his mates, okay, quacky. Um, I know a lady whose father and his mates gang raped her daughter. She refused to make a police report or do anything after her daughter told her this lady still visits her dad secretly without telling her daughter how to be kind to this woman who makes no effort to protect her own daughter. I'm so angry, please advise. I mean, that is uh, an offence. And uh, in a couple of days' time, November the 1st, Yeah, there is what we call um, mandatory reporting. So, if I'm not quite sure who that daughter actually is, but if she is being sexually abused and you give me any information, I have to report it to the police. Religious workers have to. We're one of the first people, because you know what happened before? People would tell these stories to Catholic priests, and the Catholic priests would not tell, keep it secret. And so the, West, the Australian government has now made it mandatory. You have to tell. So basically, if you know a lady whose father and his mates gang raped her daughter, you know you should actually tell the police. It's a serious. You know, that's just unacceptable and we've got to actually um, look after, you know, our members. And when you don't have any choice in the matter, it makes it much more protective. So, that's serious. I'm not cracking jokes on that one. Dear Rajan Brahm, how do you love someone? Thank you. There are three levels of love. First of all, uh, you have the romantic love. And that's how you love the way the other person makes you feel. So, you know, if you go out to looking for a partner in life, you actually don't love them, but they make you high. They, the uh, transference of smells and was it pheromes or something? I don't know the names. But I remember just reading an article on the chemistry of love. And basically, the, you know, there's interaction of mostly smells, and that makes you high when you're in that other person's presence. You say they're attractive. It's not that the face looks attractive. It's actually just when you look at them, just the smells which come from their body. And you get 
you get excited by them, usually for a couple of years. And they're like any other sort of scent, you get um, kind of, was it used to it, it doesn't excite you so much. That's why you see in relationships, you say, oh, you know, you turned me on, you know, for the first year, you don't turn me on anymore. And so they go looking for somebody else, except if you have a baby. And then other smells come out of your body, and then that makes it still attractive. That's what it said in the Time magazine <laughs> a long time ago. You know how much I used to read those magazines? So that's the attractive love, and that means you know you depend on the other person, you know, for a spirit or for a a, a happiness high. And then you get the much um, deeper love, which is called you know, loving kindness, metta. You open the door of your heart, no matter what. It's an unconditional love. And of course, that's much more pure, and it doesn't depend upon the other person. You're just being kind, and that gives you, it does give you a heart. It's really fun to be kind. Open the door of your heart to whatever's happening, and it just makes you happy, it brings a smile on your face. That's the second type of love. And the third type of love is even better than that. That's the emptiness. The love of the tennis match. Love all. Zero. Zero points. It comes from the French, luf, the egg, because zero is like an egg. So emptiness, nothingness is the highest part of love. That's why I often say, and it's not just a joke, that the greatest act of love you can do is to let somebody go, let them be free. To say to somebody, especially when they're dying, you know, my uh, wife, husband, you know, daughter, son, daddy, mum, please, you can go. You have my permission to die. And that's been such a wonderful little uh, piece of advice I've given to many people for so many years now. Because a lot of time, if you're really, really, really sick, you're close to death, one of the last things you ever want to do is to hurt the people you love so much by dying. Now deep inside of you, you're hanging on, trying your very best to make sure that you don't die. That's one of the reasons, one of those stories. There was this uh, friend of mine who was a monk together with me in Thailand. You know, even though he was a Rhodes Scholar from Oxford, and I went to Cambridge, but nevertheless, we were still friends. <laughs> but he got, um, not scrub typhus, he, it was actually, it was typhoid. He got the two strains at the same time. And we were, you know, I was not the senior monk there, but we were trying to look after him as best we possibly could. He was getting sicker and sicker and sicker. Unfortunately, I think it was typhoid. Does that make sense? Two strains? There's supposed to be three strains of it. Anyway, he was getting really so sick, but his good luck was a doctor actually visited the monastery one day, had one look at him and said, get him to Bangkok immediately. So the only way to get to Bangkok from the northeast was uh, in the, the train. So the doctor said, get him the first class compartment. He's really got to be looked after. And so they went down to Bangkok overnight and then 
the doctor arranged for an ambulance to be on the, the, the station platform in the middle of Bangkok. If ever you remember Hulong Pong Station, it was really, really busy. They put an ambulance right in the station to actually pick him up and take him to hospital. I remember talking to the, not the doctor who diagnosed him in Ubon, but the doctor who picked him up from the station. And he said as soon as he got this man into the ambulance, he thought it was already too late. They would not get him to the, the hospital in time. You know, it was in the, the shock coming from that fever for such a long time. But he pulled through, he managed, his, managed to survive. To survive, but not to recover. And he was really always sick, no energy at all. So we decided to send him to that Chittas Monastery in England. Maybe he could survive there, get some more treatment. No, a climate which is closer, you know, to what was good for him. But he was staying in the attic room at Chittas for about two years, continuously. I remember going to visit him and he would say that, you know, that he could sometimes, on a good day, he could get out of bed and go to the door but then collapse at the door. He'd never been out of the room for a couple of years. So he was really sick. And then one day, uh, the abbot at that time, that was Ajahn Sumato, went into his room and said, um, on behalf of all the monks and nuns who know you in this monastery and overseas, all the lay people, all the family, all the friends, I've come up here to formally give you permission to die. Please, you don't have to struggle so hard and try and get better. And that's where he just started crying. And then he just um, got better. He disrobed, but he's still alive to this day. <laughs> you understand the tightness and the stress, trying to get better. All these monks expect you, you know, all the time, the trouble and the expense to try and get you better and you're, you're failing. That psychology is just really what kills people. So if it's someone you really love a lot and they're dying, Please give them permission to die. Sometimes they don't die, they get better. But often they die, and they die peacefully. It's one of the greatest gifts you can give them. So will you do that to me when I get old? Say, Ajahn Prabhupada, you have our permission to die. No! <laughs> That's unfair. <laughs> Dear Ajahn, do Sorry, Ajahn, this is not a question, it says at the top. But if this is not a question, this is not an answer. <laughs> okay. How are we mean? Words are not enough to say how blessed we are to have you. Then why do you write the words then? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your kindness and wisdom. With gratitude. That looks like my writing again. <laughs> That's very kind of you, thank you. Ajahn Brahm, there is much evidence showing that psychotropic medicines such as LSD, silos, something or other, can help people heal fairly rapidly from PTSD, depression and anxiety from trauma by opening the mind. Can you comment on the nature of these in-mind altering substances in the mind? 
I had never taken them, so I can't, honestly, I never, can't speak from personal experience. But if they are, I suppose, I would say if they're used carefully, and it does actually have good effects on you, then why not? Use it as a medicine, but not as a recreational sort of drug. And there is one person I know, he was the... Um, he was actually elected in the state parliament for the, in the Cannabis Society. You know, one of those uh, fringe candidates. And uh, he's supporting the medicinal use of cannabis. And he happens to be our local MP of Serpentine Jaradel. But he's, a, he's also, he comes up here, he's a Buddhist. He's now an MP, or a senator, I think, in the state parliament. And his background is really interesting. He was a GP in Hong Kong for a while. And one of his patients was a, like an Indian uh, expat working in Hong Kong who had really bad cancer and tried everything to try and look after her and, and heal her. But she was so far gone, they did an ex uh, not experiments, they did an operation on her. And in that operation, she died on the operating table. But it was just a near-death experience. She floated out of her body, into the light, and she called it just this union with God for a while, with enormous love. And she came out of that with the insight that the reason for her cancer was that she was trying so hard to please others. And she won't do that anymore. And so when she came to, the doctors were amazed that she, was, that she wasn't dead. And the first thing she said was, uh, my cancer is cured. And I thought she was speaking, you know, crazy speak. But she was sure. And of course, that's when the cancer and all the tumours started to disappear. Her name was Anita Murajani. She wrote some best-selling books and videos. I think she called it like Dying to Live. And that was the patient of our local doctor at Serpentine um, Medical Centre who's a Buddhist, who comes, comes here. And he said that that totally changed his life, that experience, it was real. And that's why you know, he's, he's broadened his attitude, his mind, so much now. Why do we sometimes reject some statements when we really don't know what's going on? So that was one of the near-death experiences which he witnessed. And this was, he wasn't a surgeon in the hospital, he was a GP. And he just saw what was happening and just couldn't believe it. But it was happening, it was real. That's Dr. Walker. Can lay people own, get enlightened or only monastics? Only monastics, of course. <laughs> How do you feel? Of course you can get enlightened. But I say that because sometimes what happens is people say that, oh, you know, they are 
um, they get jhanas. And then I look at you, and you say you, in the interview you've had a jhana. I look at you and said, you know, sort of um, uh, Asian women can't get jhanas. And I say that. And I see what response you, you give me. If you say, that is discriminatory. What's wrong with women? What's wrong with being Asian? I'm not coming to this meditation center ever again. And I say, well, that wasn't a jhana. <laughs> if you say, okay, that's how you feel, that's fine by me. In other words, I can't upset you. Then I realize, yeah, that could have been a jhana. So when you say, can they people get enlightened? Of course they could. But if you become enlightened, and we're fully enlightened, there's a result to that. According to the tradition, if you become fully enlightened, say tonight, in this retreat, then you have to, you have to renounce and ordain as a monk or a nun. Or, you die within seven days. When I first read it, I thought, ah, oh, that's you know, just, I don't know, it's not, can't really call it tradition, like superstition. But then the more you understand, you know, what happens when enlightenment occurs, you realize just actually how true that is. Because basically, is if you become fully enlightened, the meaning of your life is taken away. The idea of like being a mother or being a worker, being a doctor, makes no sense to you anymore. Remember what I was saying about the will? The will to live fades away. Without that will to live, you can't sustain this body. There's no purpose to it. But if you're not fully enlightened, then that will can continue based on craving and attachments. Don't be embarrassed about that because most people, that's what keeps them going, craving and attachments. But that's totally overcome. The will to live, it just dries up and you die. The only reason because you're a monk or a nun is because you can teach what they say to be a field of merit for others, to do some service to keep the, the teaching going. Anyway, Thank you for sharing your wisdom and jokes. At last, people appreciate the jokes. Thank you for whoever wrote that. I find myself... How do you find this? I've been looking for myself for years. <laughs> I find myself often attaching to my thoughts, which are mostly negative and put me down. How crazy that is. You attach to the thoughts which put you down. That's like, you know, just like being a masochist. Like, why do you do that? Attach to the thoughts which at least build you up, at least it brings you some happiness. Why, it's an important point, why do we always think negatively? Why do we always love focusing on the two bad bricks? That's also why we think we should always be improving. Because we see the faults, the bad bricks, we never see the good bricks. When you start to uh, look at the good bricks, then at least you have good thoughts. Yeah, I'm a good bricklayer. That's really impressive jokes, which, <coughs> which I say. 
almost choked on myself then. <laughs> so you can notice the thoughts, but not attaching to them. Some of the good little similes is looking at the thoughts like clouds going through the sky. They block off the sun, so they're not really uh, things to celebrate thoughts, but also they just they flow past you. They don't stick in you. So the thoughts, they come and they go, and another thought comes and they go, and you don't give them so much importance. Great thinkers. Remember the statue of Rodin's great thinker? Really depressing, if you have a look at it. And instead you see the Buddha, so straight-backed, nice and light. And the bird can never land on him because he's got this big... <laughs> I should make jokes, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> but, but anyway, why is it in our Western world where we really celebrate thinking? But we don't celebrate wisdom. Thinking and wisdom are two different things. And that's one of the reasons why the wisdom born of silence, I think that was a title for one of the little books which I wrote. Wisdom born of silence, not wisdom born of thinking. If you ever notice, thinking is very rarely original. It just works on old ideas and try and find different combinations of those old ideas instead of actually really being innovative and being silent. Dear Ajahn Brahm, who am I and what is my mind? You are a nobody and it's not your mind. It doesn't belong to you, so give it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's a straight answer. Uh, before we start our meditation, we're checking out the condition of our mind. Who is asking that question? Is that mind asking by itself? I don't ask that question, it must be you. That's why I think I wrote this in that book, um, Mindfulness, Bliss and Beyond. It was actually a historical debate. You know in those old days, monks used to debate each other. Because you know, they didn't have anything else to do you know, for the villagers to, to actually to spend the evenings. So finding a good debate was very... <laughs> it was like going to a football match to see who would win. So anyway, the debate... There was one monk who was a very great intellectual and the other monk was someone who was very wise. And I think the debate went like... You know, the first monk said, now, who are you? And then the second monk said, I am me. And the first monk said, who is me? And the second monk said, you. <laughs> and who are you? And <laughs> said, me. Who's me? And the, and the second monk said, a dog. So who's a dog? You are. <laughs> <laughs> but who's you? Me. They went on like this. And one of the monks was just like being really highly intellectual. You know, who is this I, this me, this dog? 
and the other one was just being down to earth. <laughs> Who's the dog? You are. <laughs> and the thing was, they had an audience like you guys, and it meant that all the lay people were just laughing. <laughs> this intellectual was actually admitting he was a dog. <laughs> and so when he got the point, the intellectual put his hand up, so okay, you win. <laughs> I'm sorry. So anyway, that was one of the great debates. If Mahabrahma knew the Buddha's teachings were the truth, then why didn't he set his followers straight? Mahabrahma, um, oh, this is the, in the Sariputta story. He was saying, okay, because I said, the Sariputta, the last person who came to see Sariputta to pay respects in his mum's house was Mahabrahma. Why doesn't he set his followers straight? There's a conflict. Sometimes you know what's true and you, and you know some things are wrong. But if you set your followers straight, then you lose your power. In other words, in, this, uh, in the suttas, Mahabrahma is always up in his heaven. Not actually always up in his heaven. Sometimes he disappears in a big light and appears when that light comes back again. This is how it's described. So it's, you, know, you know what that means, that Mahabrahma spends some time in the first jhana, then comes back where his followers hang out. If he knew the Buddha's teachings were the truth, why doesn't he set his followers right? Half the time he's not there, and the other half of the time, again, it's almost like, um, I was that, uh, when one of those monks went to asked the, the Brahma, said, where do, that's right, no, I got it wrong, that's right, where do name and form cease without remainder, or something. And then, he went up to all the different, oh no, yeah, this, I'm just getting it right again now. This was when there was a, uh, whether it was a monk or a hermit monk, but certainly a meditator, and he could levitate. Sometimes that happens when people meditate, they can levitate. But this was a really extraordinary, like Guinness Book of Records uh, levitator. Instead of just you know, going up a few feet into the air, he decided to try and discover where the universe ends, where form disappears forever, find the end of the universe. So off he went, flying through the heavens, you know, to the places where the light of the moon and sun don't reach. You know what happened? He died on the way. <laughs> but when he got reborn, as some sort of spirit, then he asked the lower heavenly beings, yeah, where does you know, earth and water, that's right, the four elements, that's right, the four elements cease without remainder, earth, air, fire and water. And the lower heavenly beings said, we don't know, but there's another le level of heavenly beings above us, they might know. And so we got shunted up the different levels of heavenly beings. Everyone said, we don't know, but this one above us might know. Until eventually he got to Mahabrahma. And he said, where do earth, fire and water cease without remainder? And Mahabrahma said, I am Mahabrahma, the great, the creator, the lord, the, the owner, the the big shot of everything. He didn't actually say that, but I'm just, uh, <laughs> I'm just uh, uh, condensing it for you. And then the monk said, I never asked you that. 
I ask you, where does earth, air, fire, and water cease without remainder? Repeat it again. I am my Brahma, the creator, the Lord of all is, the knower of everything, all-powerful, all-knowing. Yeah, I know, you said that already, but where does earth, air, fire, and water cease without remainder? And then Mahabharma repeated it three times. We always do things three times in Buddhism. <laughs> and then Mahabharma took the... When the monk asked again, yes, that's not the question I keep asking. Where does earth, air, fire, and water cease without remainder? And the Mahabharma took him by the shoulder and pulled him aside. He said, look, I don't know. <laughs> but if all these others, you know, <laughs> heavenly beings found out that I don't know, I'll be in big trouble. And anyway, you're stupid, Mark. Lisa. There is the Buddha. You know, why don't you go and ask him? He knows much more than I do. And so the monk, sort of the, the hermit spirit, disappeared from there. And then he asked the Buddha, where do earth, air, fire and water cease without remainder? And he said, the end of this uh, earth, air, fire and water can be found inside this body and mind, this fathom-long body and mind. That's where that statement comes from. You don't go and find the end of earth, air, fire and water by asking some god. You find it inside your own body and mind by meditating. And that was a a statement which a lot of people know, but actually the whole story was actually really quite interesting. It's usually, um, people write books about that, what God didn't know. Okay, lastly, how does rebirth, Big Bang Theory and evolution relate? Or well, it doesn't. I think you all know by now that even Stephen Hawkins you know, the, towards the last few years of his life, you know, he realized one of his mistakes was the Big Bang did not start the universe. There was something which, again, my, my old mate, um, what's his name again? I'm sorry, I'm going kind uh, The friend who was a Buddhist at Cambridge. I mentioned it. Bernard Carr, yeah, thank you. Good old Bernard Carr. You know, he was working on this with Stephen Hawkins. He called it like Hawking radiation. The fact that black holes are not supposed to be able to leak, you know, any energy. They found it can. And Stephen Hawkins was the main, sort of got the main idea for that. And then people like Bernard helped him out on it. And they, they started calling not black holes, but white holes and it's Hawking radiation, which means that even black holes would eventually run out of energy. The energy will leak from them. You might call it anicca. Everything always changes and leaks. It's not an ultimate. And because the black holes will eventually leak, that's accepted by everyone now, the idea of like the Big Bang, there was obviously something before the Big Bang. It's possible now. And of course, that's also if ever you look to the news and the, uh, the was it the James Webb telescope. In other words, this big telescope in the eye, which is so much more powerful than anything else ever built, and they've managed to prove that the Big Bang is not the start of this universe. There's much stuff there which is much older than the Big Bang, which they can see. 
It was the James Webb Telescope, is that the right name of it? Yeah, okay, yeah. And so now people have got articles now, so they have to really understand that. There was something before the Big Bang. That makes sense. But it's also, okay, it's 10 past, but I remember just, because sometimes being a Buddhist with some theoretical physics background, it makes life very interesting. Because I remember just giving a presentation with um, Professor David Blair. He was used to be the, um, the head of physics at UWA. And he also, he started this gravity centre up in Jinjin somewhere. And I remember just uh, doing a presentation with him, I think it was in UWA, and he was saying that, you know, Big Bang, where did all this energy and stuff come from? Because one of the fundamental laws of science are very simple. You can't create or destroy matter energy. You can transform it from matter to energy, energy to matter, but you can't actually create or destroy it. So where did all this energy come from? All this matter, all this stuff? And then I said, but there is something which we all know as negative energy. I don't mean sort of psychological, real negative energy, like a mass, and this thing over here, in a gravitational field, this has a negative energy component. For me to actually to take this or throw it up so it leaves the Earth's gravitational field takes a lot of energy. So this has a negative energy component. Any mass in a gravitational field has a negative energy component. So there is negative mass energy, there is positive mass energy. And so I remember telling Professor Blair, what would happen if the amount of negative mass energy completely balanced the amount of positive mass energy? I remember him turning around to me and he said, wow, you're really up to date, omega equals one. I never knew what omega meant, but you know, you sussed out that the mass energy in this universe, if everything all came together, every mass, every energy, or every field, all came together, it wouldn't explode. Poof, it would be gone. Perfectly balance itself out. It can come from nothing. It can go back to nothing. And in the meantime, who are you? Nothing. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Okay, it's a good way to end the talk.